0: This is Case Closed, Crime Stories from the Golden Age of Radio. This is Case Closed, your weekly hour of old time radio crime, which you can find every Wednesday at relicradio.com. Our first story this week comes from Stand By for Crime. We'll hear The Communist Menace, their episode from 1953. After that, it's Whitehall 1212 and The Pete Williams Case. That story aired February 3rd, 1952.
1: Stand by for crime. Hi, Chuck Morgan. You know, right now, just about every large American city has a threat of communism. It's an insidious thing, dangerous, and a little bit frightening. In some cities, it's worse than others. Here in Los Angeles, where I work as a newscaster on radio station KOP, we feel that the threat is more than frightening. It's a menace that must be stamped out if our way of life is to survive. Most any day, you can turn the dial of your radio or pick up a newspaper and read where the Committee on Un-American Activities is investigating some well-known Hollywood celebrity. It gives you a queer feeling when you see those familiar names. You wonder who's going to be next and why. And you find yourself groping for an answer to this disease that is doing its best to undermine Americanism. Those were the thoughts that were running through my mind when I came into my office a few weeks ago and found the script for my 7 o'clock broadcast lying on my desk. I read it through and got a jolt that set me back on my heels. Just as I finished, my blonde secretary, Carol Curtis, came in. Hi, Chucky Boy. Hi. Who wrote this?
2: Who wrote what?
1: This script, my 7 o'clock broadcast.
2: Oh. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Uh, Pappy wrote it. He asked me to leave it on your desk. Pappy? Well, sure. What's wrong with that? After all, Chuck, Pappy owns KOP, and if he wants. Where are you going?
1: Never mind. Now, you get at that typewriter and knock out another script. This one's out. See you later.
3: Okay, Mayor, it'll be on the air tonight. Goodbye. Oh, hello, Chuck. What's on your mind? You know what's on my mind, Pappy. What kind of tripe is this you want me to broadcast tonight? Tripe? Hey, wait a minute. I wrote that script. So Carol said.
1: Are you out of your mind, Pappy? It's loaded with red
3: propaganda. I know it is. You know... Now, hold it, Pappy. This I don't believe. Sit down, Chuck, and I'll tell you about it you better make it good. Chuck, if you use this script on your broadcast tonight, there'll be a storm of protest that'll start your ears ringing. Don't worry, I'm not going to and use it. As a matter it. of fact, if listener reaction becomes too great, I may have to go so far as to give you the can. I've already told you. Now, I'd I hate to have to do it, Chuck, but after all, I've got the station and its policies to think of. You'd probably have a tough time getting another job. Yeah, yeah, I probably would.
1: Now, suppose we cut out the double talk and you give me the pitch?
3: Suppose that did happen, Chuck. Suppose I did have to fire you. And I would if you used that script. What do you think would happen? Let's not try to find out. I'll tell you what I think would happen. You're a pretty important guy. Your opinion carries a lot of weight. The communists know that. So? So sooner or later, you'd be approached. Maybe offered a job on some other station. They'd have a well-worked-out plan wherein you could be of service to the cause. I'm still hazy on this, Pappy, but if you think that I Wait till I finish, will you please? Now. If that should happen, you'd be in a position to put your finger on Mr. Big. Mr. Big? The FBI knows there's a big man here in L.A., a very big man. Maybe a high government official who's head of the communists. They want to know who he is. And they think
1: I can locate him? It's a chance. That I'm not going to take. What do you take me for, Pappy? It might be weeks or even years before I could pull that chestnut out of the fire. I might never do it. In all that time, I wouldn't have a friend in the world. I'd be despised by everyone.
3: But if you succeeded in doing the job, you'd uh... ...have performed a service for your country that may be measured in human lives and freedom... ...and a way of life we want to keep in operation. It's a thankless job. It might be, except to those who are close to you. Like myself and Carol Curtis. After it's over, she'd know. After it's over? Do you mean that even Carol wouldn't know? No one's going to know about this, Chuck, but myself and the FBI. It's got to look like the real McCoy. You sound as if you expect me to do it. I do. Oh, you do? Well, get this through, you It's your a nothing. pretty good country, Chuck. Let's do what little we can to keep it that way. You've exposed plenty of other rackets. Why not this one? Is it because you don't like the idea of being inconvenienced a little? Now, wait a minute. I never said you anything... You had everything your own way before, with the police department behind you and the station behind you and every honest citizen in town behind you. Now that you've got a toughie coming up, what are you going to do, chicken out? Why, you old goat, I... Uh, Don't let anyone
1: tell you you're not a salesman because you're not I just happen to like you, that's all Which means you'll do it Which means I'll do it, Pappy But only under the condition that if I'm stoned out of town You'll give me my job back when I bring you Mr. Big's ears Well, I made the broadcast and the storm of protest began to come in almost at once. Studio phones were ringing before my 15 minutes were up. Carol Curtis was waiting for me when I got back to my office. This, I knew, was going to be the worst ordeal of all. I was glad it was first and would be over quickly.
2: Yes, that's
1: right, Mary. Hold the calls until I let you know. Hi, Glamathus. What are you holding the calls for?
2: I want to talk to you. Okay, go ahead and talk. I heard the broadcast. Naturally, it's one of the jobs you paid for. What's behind it, Chuck? Behind what? You know what I'm talking about. You know what those telephone calls were about. You didn't mean any of those things you mentioned while you were on the air, did you? Of course I meant them. But, Chuck, it it, it was red stuff. It was un-American.
1: Don't be silly. It depends how you look at it.
2: Well, at least half the city's looking at it the wrong way. Oh, golly, I'll be glad when it gets to be 11 o'clock. Then you can tell everybody you were kidding.
1: I wasn't kidding. Now, look, you get paid to be my secretary, not my critic. Get over to that typewriter uh, and Stop
2: get... it, Chuck. I want to know the truth. Did you mean those things you said? Yes, yes, I
1: meant them. A man's got a right to his own opinion, hasn't he?
2: Mm, not when it smells to high heaven of treason, he hasn't. Freedom of speech doesn't mean you can yell fire in a crowded theater.
1: Fire in a crowded theater, what a comparison. Look, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Now, get out of my hair and go back to work.
2: no. What do you mean, no? I mean that unless you give me some explanation of that broadcast, I'm through. I'm not going to work for a red lover. Oh, you're not. We, we get
3: Oh. Hello, Pappy. I've been outside listening to most of this conversation. I don't like it. Chuck, what's your answer? Answer to what? To Carol's request for an explanation of your broadcast. She doesn't get it. Neither do you. I say what I please,
1: and no one tells me any differently. Now, will you two scram so I can go to work on my 11 o'clock show?
3: Oh, so you think you're a pretty big man, do you? Say anything you please and no one tells you differently. Well, let me tell you something. There isn't going to be any 11 o'clock broadcast by Chuck Morgan. Not on KOP. You're fired.
1: Well, it was a pretty good act. Kara was convinced, all right. I don't believe I'll ever forget the expression of disbelief and horror and hurt on her face when I walked out of that office gave me a queer feeling of hopelessness, as though I'd been convicted of a crime I hadn't committed and lost the respect and love of the one person who was most important in my life. Which, of course, is more or less true. But I didn't have much time to think about it right then. Even though only ten minutes had elapsed since I'd finished that broadcast, there was a small and angry crowd gathered at the entrance of the fenced-in parking lot. They were waiting for me. A studio cop was holding them back. was worse than I expected wasn't going to be easy to take I walked over to my car and got in the crowd at the gate was getting bigger another cop had arrived I decided if I were going to get out of there with my whole hide I'd better be now I started up and headed for the gate moving fast in second gear the cops opened a hole and I headed for it then I saw a woman break into the path of my headlights and I had to slow down someone pulled her back into the crowd but I'd almost stopped But something can sailing through the air If my car weren't equipped with unbreakable glass I would have been knocked silly It made me mad I rammed on the brake stop within ten feet and got out All right, you bums, come and get it That was a mistake It taught me a lesson They didn't come and get it. They came and got me. I was taken home in an ambulance and left nursing my wounds by a couple of unsympathetic interns. At 11 o'clock, I snapped on the radio. Pappy Mansfield came on what ordinarily would have been my last broadcast of the day with a special announcement.
3: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is John Mansfield, president of KOP Broadcasting Company. I have an announcement to make that will interest you all. Charles Chuck Morgan was dismissed from his duties as a newscaster on this station early this evening. Most of you know why. For those of you who don't, I'll tell you why. Charles Morgan is a communist. He admitted it early this evening. And this station will have no part of...
1: Pappy sounded convincing. Too convincing. I began wondering if when the time came he'd be able to convince people I was a loyal American citizen and loved being one. That hopeless, not-belonging feeling swept over me again. And it grew worse during the next few days. I hoped that Carol might phone, but she didn't. I tried calling a few of my friends, just to feel them out, and got a brush off in every case. But I didn't realize how seriously I was ostracized until I began looking for a job. That was a plan for me to look for a job and get one if I could. I naturally started in on the other radio stations...
4: Mr. Morgan. Mr. Adams told me if you showed up
2: around here to have you thrown out.
5: You got a nerve coming around here,
6: Morgan? Get out! Are you nuts, Morgan? Think I want to lose every advertiser I have by hiring a red? Now, wait
1: a minute. Won't he even talk to me? Well, that took care of the radio stations. Pappy should feel proud of the job he'd done on me. So next I went to work in the newspapers. Only this time I decided to save myself a lot of humiliation by using the phone. The secretaries of the first two publishers I called gave me a fast brush. I expected the same from the third. The Los Angeles Weekly News Ledger. But I didn't get it. This was a surprise. The Ledger, a conservative weekly news magazine, was owned by a man named Travers Bullard. Bullard, a powerfully built, lantern-jawed man, had the reputation for fine principles and square dealings. When his secretary told him I was on the wire, he sent back word he'd like to have me come over for a talk. This was the first sympathetic piece of dialogue I'd had in more than a week. It sounded so good, I turned into an eager Bieber. I got down to the ledger office in less than an hour, cooled my heels in an outside waiting room for another hour, and then was ushered in to see Travers Bullard. Hello, Mr. Bullard. Hello, Morgan. So you're looking for a job, are you? I sure am. not used to hanging around doing nothing. It's not good for men. No,
5: that's right. Still feel the same way you did about things when you made that broadcast last week?
1: Now look, Mr. Bullard, if you're going to hold that... Answer get the... the question. All right. I'll answer it. Yes, I feel the same way.
5: I thought you might. That's why I asked you to come down here. Oh? Yeah. I wanted to tell you face to face what a low-down, sneaking rat you are. I wanted to remind you that America is better off without dirty, stupid traitors like yourself. And that I'm going to do everything in my power to see that you, and all like you, are thrown out on your ear. You're like so many others, Morgan. You take advantage of all the fine things that America has to offer. You come to accept these things as your rightful heritage, and it never occurs to you that it's your responsibility to help keep that heritage intact. Instead, you turn to some stinking, small-minded philosophy that isn't worth the power to blow it. That's why I asked you down here, Morgan, to tell you what I thought and to do this! <gasps>
1: Just for the record, I'd like to say that if you're an American citizen... ...enjoying the privileges that America has to offer, you're lucky. For the first time in my life, I was deprived of my heritage. And therefore, for the first time, I was knowing its real worth. Freedom of speech. Freedom from fear. a sense of belonging. Of knowing that I was a part of this great America. That what I said was important. That as an individual, I was needed and wanted and not a sheep that instinctively and blindly followed a leader. Now I was deprived of these blessings. I was on the outside looking in. I was the man without a country, hated, despised, rejected by the free society I loved. It was tough. I thought that if I ever got back my self-respect, I'd never again complain about anything that was American. One night, I was eating dinner in a joint down on Lower Vine Street.
4: May I sit down? Oh,
1: yeah, sure. But you better wait a minute. I want you to know who I am first. You might change your mind.
4: <laughs> I know who you are. You're Chuck Morgan.
1: Yeah, that's right. Still want to sit down?
4: Of course. You look so lonesome and forlorn sitting here by yourself.
1: <laughs> well, I guess that's about describes describes it. I am lonesome and forlorn. Have a drink?
4: No, no, thank you. This is unbelievable. You have no friends?
1: No. I'm poisoned to everybody I used to know. Mm-hmm.
4: Then perhaps you'd like to meet some new friends? Yeah, sure.
1: <laughs> look, don't waste your time, miss. I've Just you that...
4: call me Maria.
1: Okay, Maria. Don't waste your time. No one wants any part of me.
4: I think perhaps you are wrong.
1: Yeah? Well, then you don't read the papers.
4: Oh, yes. I read the papers every day. And listen to the radio, too. Especially the news broadcasts on KOP. Oh, I see. Then, if you are sure that you do see, perhaps you would like to join me and some of my friends at a small gathering we are having. When? This evening. I'm sure you'll find many sympathetic people among those present.
1: Well, sounds like fun. Shall we go? We drove out to a small stucco house on a side street off Washington Boulevard in Culver City. There were a half dozen people inside. Nice, ordinary looking people. They all shook hands with me warmly. Nobody said anything about the broadcast that got me fired. In fact, nothing much of anything happened. Around 11 o'clock, the meeting broke up and I drove Maria home. The next day, I met her for lunch. And two nights later, we attended another meeting... This time, it was at a house in Glendale. None of the same people were there. But this new bunch were just as friendly. One of them was a guy named George Zerba. And he gave me my first inkling of what the score was.
6: Nice bunch of people, don't you think, Mr. Morgan? Come, me Chuck. Yeah, they're swell. How are things going with you? Lousy. Kind of tough getting a job when you don't happen to think along the lines of certain people, huh? Eh? It's <laughs> It's murder. Need any dough? Yeah. Yeah, I could use a few bucks. Here's a hundred. And don't worry about paying it back. Well, thanks. Forget it. Ever think of leaving L.A.?
1: Well, I may have to if I don't get a break
6: pretty soon. How about the East Coast? That's okay. There's a couple of radio stations there that could use a good newscaster with the uh, right ideas. Well, they hire me, though. Every station in the country knows about me being fired. It could be arranged. I see. How about though? You could practically name your own figure. If you obeyed orders. Who'd be giving the orders? The big man himself. When do I get to meet him? Maria will let you know. Well,
1: this was it. Apparently, my indoctrination period was about over. Now, I knew I'd been closely watched. I guess that my telephone lines had been tapped. And I congratulated myself on not having attempted to get in touch with Pappy or anyone else. I guess it was a genuine sense of loneliness that I'd felt that made my act pay off. Well, three nights later, Maria and I went to the Vine Street Derby for dinner. It's been a long time since I've eaten here.
4: In the East, you will be able to go many places and hold your head up.
1: Oh, you know about that.
4: (laughs) I know about many things.
1: I'm uh, waiting for the answer to one.
4: Yes. You will be home tomorrow evening at seven o'clock.
1: Hmm. Could be arranged Someone going to call Perhaps The big man
4: Let us speak of him as the leader And by the way You will be one of the few Who know his identity
1: Well, that must mean that uh, The job he has for me Must be pretty important
4: Extremely so
1: You must be plenty sure I'm the real thing
4: The leader does not make mistakes You have been carefully checked
1: Good I'll be glad to get started Incidentally, do I know uh, the leader? You know, I I don't want to get too much of a shock.
4: He will be shocked.
1: Then I do know him, I?
4: You know him very well.
1: Ah, well, that's very interesting. Well, until tomorrow night, then, a toast to the leader and my new job. next day was the longest I'd ever lived. It was hard to believe that the ordeal of the past few weeks was nearly over. That almost as soon as tomorrow I'd be able to sit in front of a microphone at KOP and tell the world that I was an American and glad of it. By 6.30, I was so nervous my hands were trembling. I went into the kitchen and poured myself a straight shot. I was still there when the door buzzer sounded. Well, here it was. I got up. Feeling a sense of anticipation that was almost eerie. Then I forgot that, forgot everything, in fact, but the job at hand and crossed to the door. I knew the man who was standing there all right, knew him very well indeed. It was Pappy
3: Mansfield. What the devil... Never mind that now. We're going hide. Hide? Do you realize... That... I realize everything. Get me out of sight in a hurry. Okay, come in. In there. Keep away from the windows. Good deal. See you later. Yeah,
1: see you later. You bet he'd see me later, the old goat. Didn't he realize he almost loused up two weeks of work on my part? I didn't have much time to think about it. Less than two minutes later, the buzzer sounded again. This time, I felt it was going to be the McCoy.
5: Hello, Chuck. Travers Bullard. Surprised, eh?
1: Yeah, yeah, I thought that you... Uh,
5: sorry about that crack on the jaw, my boy, but I had to make sure you were convinced I wasn't the leader.
1: You've convinced me, all right.
5: And you've convinced me and the other members of our little group that you weren't working a gag. You'll make a good member of the party, son. We're glad to have you with us. Thanks. Now, let's get down to business, shall we? You'll find all your instructions in this envelope. In two days, you'll leave for New York. One of our agents will meet you at the airport.
1: Anything else in the envelope?
5: Uh, one of the first things you'll have to learn, my boy, is not to ask questions. Just obey orders. But since you're new to the organization, I'll let you in on a few things. That envelope is loaded with information about the future plans of a couple of our biggest airplane plants. You mean that you... But how? The Los Angeles Weekly Ledger is a big and powerful magazine, my boy. And a man as well-trusted as I, well, there are ways. Now then. Travers Bullard. Well, this is a day I never expected to see. Mansfield. Morgan, did you... I mean, for two weeks we tried to trip
1: you up. No, I don't believe it. Our organization is too perfect. We never make mistakes. You've made one, Bullard, a butte. All the evidence we need to put you where you belong is contained right here in this envelope.
5: No, you'll never expose me. Never. I've worked too hard. There's too much at stake.
1: Watch him, Chuck. He's got a gun. Yes, I see he has. That makes things even. The man behind him has one, too. You can't fool me with that one. It's too old and corny. Now stand over there, both of you. Suit yourself, Bullard. If you figure that dying's better than prison. Look out, Pappy. It was quite a fight. Pappy had tripped over a rug, and Bullard, suspecting a trick, had swung on him, which was my cue to repay with interest that crack on the jaw he'd given me down at the ledger office. Bullard, however, was a powerful man, and it took a lot of doing to get him under control. His gun went off in the breakers, but it didn't hurt anybody. He's still alive. Those of you who listen to my broadcast know where he is now. He's got a private room in a big gray building with iron bars on the window. Pappy and I got back to the station around ten o'clock. Here's your office, Pappy. Now, tell me, what was the idea of almost lousing up my good work by showing up at the apartment five minutes before Bullard arrived?
3: Because it occurred to me at the last minute that two witnesses to his dialogue would be more effective at a trial, especially with you having seemingly gone over to the Reds. Yeah, I see, you're right. Well, well, as it turned out, the information contained in the envelope would have been enough. That's right. Trouble is, I didn't know there were going to be an envelope. Well, anyhow, it's okay now. Oh, uh, she's waiting for you in your office good night. So long, Pappy. It's good to be back. See you. Hi,
1: grandma Puss.
2: Hi, Chuck. Your script's ready for the 11 o'clock broadcast. Want to read it over? Oh, I don't know. What's in it? The fact's about you exposing Travis Bullard. No kidding.
1: How'd you know about that?
2: Pappy phoned me. Did he now? Mm-hmm.
1: I see you're all in a sweat about having me back.
2: I knew you'd be back. No kidding. How'd you know that? Well, I figured it out. You went ramming out of here that night Pappy wrote your script and yelling at me to write another. And then you came back and said you were going to use the one Pappy wrote. Oh, I'm not so dumb. No, as a
1: matter of fact, you're nowhere near as
2: dumb Don't as... you say it. Don't you dare. If you tell me once more I'm not as dumb as I look, I'll, I'll bring you with this typewriter.
1: <laughs> you know something, Larmapur? What? You're a ham. Why, you're you... You're putting on an act. What you really want to do is bawl and fling your arms around my neck and tell me you're glad to have me back. I
2: don't. The... I don't at all. I... I... Oh, Chuck!
1: puss. <laughs> Whitehall, one-two,
2: one-two.
7: This is Scotland Yard.
8: For the first time in history, Scotland Yard opens its secret files to bring you the authentic stories of some of its most baffling cases.
7: These are the stories, the unvarnished facts, just as they occurred, reenacted for you by an all-British cast. Only the names of the participants have for obvious reasons been changed. The stories are presented with the full cooperation of Scotland Yard.
8: Research on Whitehall 1212 is prepared by Percy Hoskins, chief crime reporter of the London Daily Express. The stories for radio are written and directed by Willis Cooper. Here are the participants in case number 921 mr 421 Peter Williams, who boxed at 135 pounds.
9: It's all right. It looked like your duty.
8: Mrs. Jessie Fallowfield, his mother-in-law.
10: It'll come out all right one of these days, I'm sure.
8: Sir Brendan O'Neill, home office pathologist at Scotland Yard. We're doing the best we can do. Iris Williams, who resembled her mother.
11: No, no, not to the police station, no!
8: Chief
12: Inspector Oscar Ford of Scotland Yard. On the morning of 19th November, 1943, two engineers employed by a Bedfordshire town discovered something floating, half submerged in the waters of the River Lee. If you'll come with me down the corridor here to the Black Museum, I'll show you what they found. Come along, please. This is Scotland Yard's Black Museum, of which you may have heard. Well, Chief Superintendent John Davison doesn't seem to be here.
11: Well, John? Who is it? It's the Ford, John. Oh, I'll be with you, Grant.
12: Chief Superintendent Davison is the custodian of the Black Museum. Has a long and distinguished record
11: with the Yard. Oh, good afternoon. Came in connection with the Williams case, John. Oh, yes. 921-MR-421. Up here on the shelf. See, I hope you're not too disappointed in not finding skeletons and gory human bodies lying about in here. But they're in short stock with us. Yeah, this is it, Oscar. Actually, this isn't the Grand Guino, you know. The articles filed away in here, all, of course, at some connection with one crime or another, but they're not particularly gory now. We don't keep them here to inspire writers of Penny Dreadfuls on the wireless at all. No, they're here for the use as reference items in our business of catching criminals. Examples, you see, of how certain crimes were committed. And I think you'd be amazed how much they aid our people in solving of other similar ones. Now, these things in this box are potato sacks. Ordinary rough burlap sacks. But potatoes come in.
12: Other things come in them too, John.
11: Yes, a dead body came in this one.
12: Clammy rain mixed with snow had been falling all day when I arrived at the riverbank 40 miles north of London. Thanks to the inclement weather, no crowd had gathered... And the huge local constable, the unfortunate victim, and I had the dismal landscape all to ourselves. I showed my card to the constable.
13: Thank you, sir. That's it? I wouldn't look if you don't need to, sir. Drowned, eh? Not only drowned, sir. Oh. Doctors just left, sir. They'll be coming to take her to the mortuary. Her? He thinks it was
12: a woman. It was, of course, patent that the woman had died a violent death, to use the old cliché, at the hands of a person or persons unknown. Our job was not only to find that person or persons unknown, but first to establish the identity of the unfortunate young woman who had worn potato sacks as her ultimate garment. A homicide is a very personal thing. The relations between victim and killer that exist before the deed are most important in discovering the latter. But lacking identification of the victim most difficult to establish what relations ever existed between the late unlamented and any other person in the world. So one might think that the secret of successful murder is to render your victim unidentifiable. But don't try it. It can't be done. We'll catch you. Sir Brendan O'Neill, the Home Office pathologist, told me to what extent the killer had attempted to prevent identification of the victim, and thus of himself.
14: There are no fingerprints, of course. I, I suggest that you have the bottom of the river Lee dragged at once. Already. See if you can find the missing hands.
12: Already had that, Sir Brandon. No luck so far, though.
14: Well, whoever she was, she wore false teeth, so there's no good trying that one.
12: The teeth are missing, of course.
14: Neither upper nor lower plate.
12: Oh, they might be at the bottom of the river, too, in a foot of mud somewhere.
14: Well, you'll never find them. I've never seen such a completely anonymous body in all my time, Oscar.
12: No scars or moles, birthmarks, that sort of thing? Not a
14: thing. I can tell you her height, though. Five feet, three inches. And her weight. Assuming that the missing arms weighed about 20 pounds, that'd make her 121 pounds. Say 120. Quite average brown hair, bobbed. Can't tell you what color her eyes were. No. We're trying to type her blood now. afraid that's all.
12: No, her age, sir?
14: I'd say about 27. Oh, yes. And she'd had children...
12: Mm, it not much to go on, is it?
14: Best we can do, Chief Inspector.
12: Oh, I know that, sir. Those wounds on her head—hit
14: mm, with something that has a sharp corner—smashed the skull in three places. Dead when she was thrown into the water.
12: Well, we'll check every missing woman case up Bedfordshire way first. See if we can find out which 120-pound, five-foot-three woman's not accounted for.
14: Mm, had children, dull brown bobbed hair. That's all of it.
12: I should have listened to my father. Huh? He wanted me to be a parson, sir. Oh.
14: Well, good luck.
12: I'll well, bloody well needed, I muttered to myself as I closed the door. <coughs> I didn't have any, though, for a long time. This is what we accomplished in the next six weeks.
7: 534 lorry drivers known to have passed the river bank where the body was found during the 24 hours previous to the finding of the body were investigated and screened.
12: Result? Nothing.
7: The movements of every soldier on day leave from the nearby army camps during that period were traced.
12: Result? Nothing.
7: Every war factory worker in the vicinity, in both day and night shifts, was questioned.
12: Result? Absolutely nothing.
7: 604 women throughout Britain who had been reported missing were checked on by Scotland Yard and Provincial Police.
12: Result? All 604 women were found
7: alive. The banks and bottom of the River Lee were searched for two miles in both directions from the place where the body was found
12: results? Quantities of mud and useless debris.
7: A photograph of the skull was given to an expert artist who carefully retouched it into what we all hoped was a semblance of the dead woman's features.
12: And we caused copies of this photograph to be handed from house to house in this market city of 70,000. We had the photograph exhibited on the screens at all the local cinemas. Thousands of persons saw this retouched picture in the weeks before Christmas 1943, including the murderer himself, we found out later. But the results were still nothing at all. On the day after Christmas, the coroner's order for the burial of the remains was signed. Case number 921 MR421 was about to be stamped unsolved. As I was leaving the yard on the evening of that 26th, I ran into Chief Superintendent John Davidson, the black museum man.
11: Have a good Christmas, sir, I asked. Not bad at all, Oscar. Very pleasant. You? I worked. What a pity understand they're burying that girl tomorrow. I expect that's the end of it. Burying her up there in Bedfordshire, are they? Aye. Going to the funeral?
12: Well, sir, you'd hardly call it a funeral exactly. You're going? Hardly, sir.
11: Hmm. Oh, have a cigar? Canadian friend of mine sent me a box for Christmas. Real Corona Perfectos. Thank you, sir. Well, one more for me, then. I should think it would be an act of Christian charity if you did attend the girl's funeral. Well, sir, I... I remember once, about nineteen nine or ten, if I remember correctly. I think it was old Smudgy Steele, Inspector Steele, dead now. He nabbed a man at a funeral. That's so, sir. The murderer. The chap came to gloat, I expect, at his victim's last rites. Steele wondered who this stranger was, and... Got into conversation with him. <laughs> Orson Welles or someone ought to get hold of that one. <laughs> Make a corking good penny dreadful, wouldn't it? The stranger at the funeral or something. <laughs> but it really happened. Might happen again, too, you know. Well, good night. Yes, yeah, uh, good night, sir.
12: <laughs> <laughs> And so I rode 40 miles to a market town on a dismal day after Boxing Day to a grimy little cemetery not far from one of the hat factories for which the town is celebrated. The two second assistant sextons were shoveling the frozen cloths into the raw new grave as I walked away from there with the huge constable and the young army chaplain who had been summoned away from a nearby officer's mess to officiate. The cemetery was deserted except for us. The murderer hadn't been in attendance after all. The big constable and I walked on past the hat factory whilst the young chaplain left to go back to his unfinished lunch. It was cold. Streets almost deserted. The policeman talked about the tug-of-war at the last summer's police game.
13: I give you my word, sir. I never saw such a team as them blokes from the city police. Uh-huh. Not a man less than 15 stone amongst them. And coop blow, that anchor man. Well, that chap weighed not a pound less than 17 stone, and strong, a ruddy bull, name of Brian O'Brien, from Galway, originally. <laughs> I, I thought I should have died laughing, sir, <laughs> the way that belt nearly cut him in two. Yeah. He sunk them great eels in, and he often. he and What's the matter with you,
12: young lady? Nothing the matter with her voice. Oh, now, what's the matter, dear?
4: I want my mummy. Oh,
12: she's lost. best take of the nearest police station, eh? Come along,
13: young lady. She you thinks you're going to throw her in jail, No! Oh, I'm not going to pick your sister. You lost, you see. Mummy, lad! Mummy, lad! Probably swilling tea somewhere or all in the cinema. No!
10: Mummy in London!
4: Mummy, God! I want my mummy!
13: Oh,
12: that's jolly. Now, what do we do, Constable?
10: Mummy said she's coming home for Christmas. Uh, Mummy, not go! Poor child. I want
4: Mommy. Here, little girl. Little girl. What's
12: your name? Well, look up at me. Here, let me let me see your face.
13: What's the matter, sir?
12: I have a hunch. Yes, sir. Now, don't let that kid get away. Yes. Yeah. What she done, sir? I'll show you in a second. Look, keep her quiet, no. will you? Before we run in. Stow it, you little darling.
13: Go. Now, no, no mustn't bite. Oh, hurry up, sir, please. Oh,
12: give her a sixpence or something. I'll find it in a minute. Ah, uh, here. Here it is.
13: Look at
4: it. Look me, at it. Miss don't me. let her see it. An
13: uh, lover, ruddy duck. Oh, my mommy. You recognize the paper there? Well, of course, sir. We circulated thousands of these all over
12: town. Oh, well, tell me what it is.
13: Oh, darling. Yes, uh, sir. It's the picture of the missing woman you people at Scotland Yard had made up.
12: <laughs> what else do you see? Sir? Sure. I said, what else do you see?
13: No! <laughs> oh! This little maniac whose mother is missing is a spitting image of the picture. <laughs> All right. Come on.
12: Come on, darling. We'll take you home.
7: My mummy come home.
12: Now, dear. Your
7: mummy can't come home now.
12: <laughs> we accompanied the little girl whose name we learned was Iris Williams, age three, to her home a short distance away. It was a modest three-room flat occupied by a Mrs. Jessie Fallowfield, the child's grandmother, and her son-in-law, Iris' father, a member of the local National Fire Service unit. Little Iris retreated to the doorstep with an enormous slice of bread and wild bramble jelly while Mrs. Fallowfield talked with us.
10: Yes, I've been here only two weeks, you see. I didn't want to talk before little Iris, her mother's away, my daughter.
12: So we understand from Iris, Mrs. Fowlerfield.
10: Quite. I don't like to have to say it, but Jessie, my daughter, she has the same name as mine, and Peter, my son-in-law, didn't get on together.
12: Where is your son?
10: At the fire station. Oh. Well, to speak quite plainly, my Jessie wrote to me at Seven Oaks in Kent, you know, that she couldn't stand it here with Peter any longer, and she was going away.
12: Well, how long ago
10: was that? Oh, the 19th of November.
12: Uh-huh. You haven't heard from her since?
10: Oh, yes, indeed, almost every week.
12: You've heard from her since she left?
10: Oh, yes, but we're on the best of terms, as long as we're not together, you see. I'm afraid she's a bit flighty. Well, one can't live one's daughter's life, can one?
12: No, no, one can't. And you say you've heard from her recently?
10: Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, the reasons I came from Sevenoaks to live here is because she wrote asking me to. Indeed, me. Yes, she insisted she couldn't live with Peter. But he needs to be taken care of, says she, and won't you go and make a home for him, Mother? So that's why I'm here. Peter just moved in with me a week ago. It's very cozy. Oh, I do wish she'd come home again, though it would probably be the same thing all over again. Bicker, bicker, bicker. Oh, there's no peace in this world anywhere, is there?
9: Well,
12: uh, uh, I'm sure we're very sorry to have bothered you, Mrs. Fallowfield, but we were quite captivated by little Iris.
10: I do hope she didn't hurt you. Oh, a
12: bit of you to come and fix that up, ma'am. Iris was quite upset that her mother hadn't come home for Christmas.
10: Oh, my, yes. Though Jessie wrote both Peter and me saying she couldn't make it. She was so busy there in Hampstead, the Christmas rush and all.
12: Hairdresser, you said.
10: Yes, but I'm afraid I don't know the name of the place.
12: Well, it doesn't really matter, since you're sure it was your daughter's handwriting in that letter.
10: Well, I should think I'd be able to recognize that handwriting of hers. The hours I've spent trying to teach her to write (laughs) tidily.
12: Well, I hope you'll pardon our intrusion, Mrs. Fallowfield. We were so taken with dear little Iris. Yes. And rather alarmed about her mother. Oh? And I'm afraid that we uh, police officers...
10: Suspicious. I'm sorry. Well, there's nothing at all to worry about my daughter, gentlemen. I'm quite sure that she's safe.
12: Oh, I'm quite sure of that, madam. But uh, her husband, your son.
10: Oh, I'm sure. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's Peter now. Peter?
9: Hello, Ma. There's another letter from Jessie here. Oh,
10: I'm sorry. These gentlemen are from the police, Peter.
9: The
11: police?
12: About Jessie. I'm happy to see you, Mr. Williams. Oh, I'm Chief Inspector Ford of
9: Scotland Yard. What, what, what's this about, Jessie?
10: Oh, don't be alarmed, Peter. Iris was blubbering in the street about her mummy being lost, and these gentlemen were afraid murder has been done or something equally horrid and brought her home.
9: Oh, well, well, thank you, gentlemen. Mother, I must have tea early. I'm fighting tonight.
10: My son is a boxer.
9: You're, you're a lightweight, I take it, Mr. Uh, Williams? Uh-huh. 135 pounds, yes. Didn't
13: see your name on the card. At the drill-all,
9: eh? Yes. Slasher Rifkin broke his wrist this afternoon. I'm a substitute. I oh, shall so probably
13: see you then. Too
9: bad about Slasher. Good man, that. Saw him fight that Australian four weeks ago. Oh, no, I've beaten him twice. He can't stand up against a left-handed boxer.
10: You're
7: left-handed?
9: Yes.
10: Another letter from Jesse Peter.
9: Yes. The postman was just
12: passing, and he... uh, Is that another example of your daughter's handwriting, Mrs. Fallowfield?
10: Oh, yes. Oh,
9: yes, of course.
10: Did you ever see such writing? The girl will never learn.
9: (laughs) Nobody could ever imitate that writing. Well, gentlemen, I'm sorry that you've had to get mixed up in all this. My wife's a very charming girl, but... Oh, we quite understand. I I hope you'll forgive our intrusion. It's all right. Looked like your duty, I suppose. Another one of those unfortunate affairs. I'm sorry about it, but, well, you're men of the world. You understand. Oh, yes, quite.
10: It'll all come out right one of these days, I'm sure, though.
9: It's all right, Mother Fallerfield. The gentleman, if you'll excuse me, I've got to have my tea
12: now. Oh, of course, of course. Uh, So sorry to have disturbed you, sir, and uh, Mrs. Fallerfield.
10: It's quite all right. Good Good night. Good night. Good night. Now, Peter, would you fancy a nice kipper, perhaps?
8: Well,
12: what did you think,
13: sir? Sure. Done a bit of boxing in my time too. What? One thing I learned many years ago. Yes. Never trust a left-handed boxer.
12: I went back to London completely baffled at this turn of events that had suddenly reopened a case that should have been closed in that wintry little graveyard. Here was almost indubitable proof that the woman we had buried was still alive and in constant communication with her husband and her mother. The letter from her had arrived on the very day I had seen her body committed to the frozen ground. It was impossible, obviously. Out at my desk at Scotland Yard the next morning... I arranged to have every known hairdressing shop in Hampstead and the whole north of London investigated to find if any employed a girl named Jessie Williams or Jessie Fallowfield. I'd caught the return address on the envelope in the Fallowfield flat, and it said, Jessie Williams, Hampstead. Hampstead. Spelled that way without the P. H-A-M-S-T-E-A-D. I remember well, I thought she spells as badly as she writes. I dismissed it. And picked up the telephone to make a routine inquiry.
7: Criminal records office, Sergeant
12: Healy. I'd like you to look up a chap for me, please. Who's this speaking, please? Oh, I'm sorry. Chief Inspector Ford. Yes, sir. chap named Peter Williams, a boxer by profession. Comes from Bedfordshire. See if we've ever had any dealings with him before, will you? Take some time, sir. Oh, good enough. Ring me when you find out, will you?
7: Williams, Peter.
12: That's all I know about him. We'll see what we can find, sir. All right. Thank you. I went upstairs to see Sir Brendan O'Neill, the home office pathologist.
14: Hello, Oscar. Get her buried, all right?
12: Yes, sir. Sit down. But I want to dig her up again.
14: What for, old boy?
12: Can it be done? Well, of course, there's
14: sufficient reason.
12: I need to know one or two things.
14: Well, it's unusual, but... uh, The
12: case isn't closed yet. I saw to that. Well, if her relatives don't raise the round... We haven't been able to find any relatives, sir. Oh,
14: that's right, isn't it? Well, that case, dig her up.
12: Right, sir. Then we can have her sent down here, and I'll need your personal assistance, Sir Brendan. For what? I want to find out some things.
14: I can't tell you her name, Oscar.
12: Perhaps I can.
14: What do you want me to do, then?
12: Help me to find a very clever murderer, sir. These things happen during the next two days. First, a report from the officer in charge of checking the hairdressing establishments.
13: We have checked every hairdressing shop in the entire north portion of London. with special reference to Amstead, sir. 131 shops. Not one has any record of a woman named Jessie Williams or Jessie Fallerfield. There was only one Jessie among them all, a Mrs. Jessie Forrester, age 61. She was obviously not the person we was after.
12: Thank you, Sergeant. Yes, sir. A report from the Criminal Records Office of Scotland Yard.
7: Sergeant Healy speaking, sir. We checked thoroughly on your boxer, Peter Peter Williams.
12: Find anything on him?
7: Yes, sir. He's been up twice. Convicted, penal servitude in both instances. Good. That all, sir?
12: Yes. Oh, no. Uh, what was he charged with?
7: Forgery, sir.
12: A final visit to Sir Brendan O'Neill's laboratory. Here's the. Uh, here's the report, Oscar.
14: She was struck twice on the head with a flat object, like a wide metal bar or a heavy narrow wooden plank. The instrument was of an undetermined length, but the marks on the skull indicate that it was three and seven eighths inches wide, at the point where it was struck into the skull.
12: Very good indeed, Sir Brendan. Uh, how about the other experiment?
14: Well, they're still working on that. Ah, uh, looks rather silly, doesn't it? I think you were right. Will you be able, do you think, to swear to it if if uh, you find I'm right, sir? Well, if results continue this way, we shall. Uh, you sent for me, Sir Brandon? Oh, yes, yes. Sir. You're Hayes, aren't you? Yes, sir. For... Right or left handed, Hayes?
11: Left handed, sir. Good. Uh, over
14: on that side, they'll call you when they're ready, Hayes. Uh, yes, sir.
12: Would you like to take a little trip up to Bedfordshire with me, Sir Brendan? My constable friend from the tug-of-war team had briefed me on how to find the little house where the Boxer Williams had lived with his wife Jessie before she went away, as he said, to Hampstead, before he had gone to live with her mother. It was a tiny cottage not far from his present flat. I noted with interest that one of the windows looked out onto the graveyard where we had buried that poor woman a few days before. We walked around the place, staring at the neat rooms, empty as they'd stood since Williams had moved out. There was nothing at all at first to excite our interest. Sir Brendan O'Neill walked into the tiny stone-floored scullery. I watched with the other Scotland Yard man who'd come with us. Sir Brendan spoke from the other room. This
14: might be it, Oscar. Oscar. And this strip of wood on this old bench here.
7: Measure it. Three. Three and seven-eighths inches, all right.
14: Well, right width, Oscar.
7: Good. It's been nailed on fairly recently, sir. These are new nails.
14: See if you can get it off. Uh, Carefully.
7: Oh, I can do it.
14: Hand me the parcel, Oscar.
12: What's that, sir? It's a s- skull. Never mind it.
14: A the, uh, the piece of wood. You've been here before, madam. Fits the scars perfectly, Oscar. I think we've got... Mm. That him?
13: Right inside, Mr. William, if you please. That's him. Back here in the scullery, constable. Right, sir.
12: Good afternoon, Mr. Williams. Hello, Inspector...
9: Ford, Scotland Yard, sir. I'm afraid I don't quite understand. Why, we'll try to show you, Mr. Williams. I really haven't much time. thought.
12: I... <laughs> that's enough, Constable. What? A few things, Mr. Williams. Now, what's the name of that place that your wife writes to you from?
9: Why, Amstead.
12: How do you spell that?
9: Why, H-A-M-S-T-E-A-D.
12: How interesting. Well, that's the way it's spelled on those letters from your wife, isn't it?
9: Isn't that right? I... That's the way I always spelled it. I Exactly. This object is the skull of a woman. Shall
12: we say, uh, resembled your wife in many ways? I don't know. I... May I have the club, Sir Brendan? Thank you. This heavy plank, which is... Been once removed from this stool here and been replaced. Fits the scars on the skull exactly. You see? Now, look here. I don't know about... Watch him, Constable.
13: I'm watching him, sir.
12: And Sir Brendan O'Neill here conducted certain experiments with this poor relic of the woman who so closely resembled your wife, Mr. Williams. A large number of men...
14: 141.
12: A hundred and forty-one men struck at this skull which was placed where a standing woman's head might be. What is this nonsense? I'm afraid it's far from nonsense, Williams. <gasps> None of the right-handed men were able to strike the skull at all in the region of the scars. But every left-handed man could.
13: Steady, lefty.
12: Peter Williams, I arrest you on a charge of willful murder of your wife, Jessie Williams. And I warn you that anything you may say will be taken down in writing and may be used in evidence you wish to make a statement at this time? The evidence was incontestable. At the trial, the testimony of handwriting experts proved that Williams had written the letters purportedly coming from his wife after her death. The days on which these letters had been posted were in every case the days on which Williams had been off duty the only days on which he had been able to go to London for that purpose. It was demonstrated in court that only a left-handed man could have struck the fatal blows. The testimony of more than a dozen acquaintances of the couple provided the motive for the murder. And in a dramatic break with his counsel in open court, Williams shouted out his confession that he had indeed committed the brutal murder. He was sentenced to be hanged, And the sentence was executed on May Day, 1944.
8: You have heard another in the series Whitehall 1212, compiled by special permission from the official files of Scotland Yard. Only the names have been changed, otherwise the story is true. Research for Whitehall 1212 is prepared by Percy Hoskins of the London Daily Express. The stories for radio are written and directed by Willis Cooper. Three chimes mean good times on NBC.
0: That's it for Case Closed this week. Hope you enjoyed our shows. This time, you can find more from Standby For Crime, Whitehall1212, Case Closed, and thousands of other old-time radio episodes at relicradio.com. Also got a shoutcast stream up and running there as well with even more old-time radio. If you'd like to help support all of it, visit donate.relicradio.com or click on one of the links on the website. You make it all happen and have for 15 years. Thanks for that. Thanks for joining me today. Be back next Wednesday with another hour of Case Closed.